As we, we get to this passage today, you might be thinking, boy, I'm looking forward to this. And um, as, as a, one studying through it, it's a little overwhelming task sometimes when you get to passages like this. And then you read um, from uh, some saints of old and current saints that write things like this. Martin Luther, he wrote this about this text. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. I cannot understand and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. So, And then uh, the current um, pastor and theologian and author of our day, Pastor John Piper, I heard him say, I'm simply not sure what these verses mean. So um, in light of that, of these guys who have studied harder and are smarter than I am and wrestled with it even more than I have, and they're still unsure at the end, well, um, so am I. So um, let's just move on to chapter four. How about that? (laughs) No, I'm just joking. That's one of the the treasures of walking through a letter, um, walking through a book, is that you have to wrestle through it. And um, sometimes you see that even um, the apostles must have had blind spots here and there because Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, 15 through 16, he writes this about Paul. Maybe you're familiar with this passage. And he says, I count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul, our beloved brother Paul, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks to them of this matter. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. He's speaking of the writings of Paul, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, and um, as they do other scriptures. So, so Paul pointed, or Peter pointed to Paul and said it was difficult, but he they kind of easily said, and I've written some things that are a little bit challenging as well. So, uh, but I think when we do come to these types of passages, there's a couple things we should know. One thing we do use in the scripture when there's a difficult passage that seems difficult to understand, we go and look at the context and we look at other scriptures that help us understand that scripture. And also as we look at it too, we're reminded that throughout scripture that there is a clarity um, in it. And we look, can look and we know that the, the main, sometimes maybe you've heard it said the, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And it's true that um, the main doctrines of scripture are clear and also it should teach us too when we find an obscure passage we should be very careful not to build a full doctrine out of it because we know it is one that has been wrestled with through the ages but we can still see big themes and truths of God's word and as we look at this I think as we look at the person and the work of Jesus Christ that are written here about his suffering of his crucifixion and resurrection in it we will see just the true eternal life that we have in Jesus as he brings us to God. We also see that there's victory over evil and sin that we see in the life of Christ. We see a rescue as well, that we can be rescued through Christ. And there's this eternal salvation that we find in him. And also, we can find rest as we see that Jesus reigns. And we can find rest in Christ. So there's lots of good things that we can see, even if there's an obscure passage that we pull through. So Let's dig in. The first verse that we see is one of those clear passages and one that I I love that speaks of the the gospel and what Christ has done for us. So as we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, we do find that we have true eternal life in him as he brings us to God. So let's look at verse 18. 
for Christ. Also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Or maybe your translation says, being made alive by the Spirit, capital S, alive by the Spirit. So here, as we look at this, and as we've seen throughout Peter, he talks about suffering, and he's had us look at Christ and the suffering of Christ and encouraged to suffer as Christ suffers, to not revile, to not, when we're insulted, not to insult and not to seek to seek revenge, but to do good, even blessing those who seek to do evil to us. But here, there's a different use of the suffering of Christ. In the suffering of Christ, we see that in the suffering of Christ, we find real hope. We see forgiveness. We see new life. We see victory. We see salvation in the suffering of Christ, that we find hope in that. And in these verses, we do, it does show us that there's true life through the suffering of Christ that's brought to us through his death and resurrection, through his death for us on the cross, that there is victory. Sometimes we talk about this as a, a substitute for our sin, a substitutionary atonement, that he died in our place for our sins. As Romans 6.23 says, a verse that you may be familiar with, this is the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life. So the wages, the result of our sin, the earnings for our sin is death. But we see that Christ, the one who is righteous, stood in our place for the unrighteous and pays this price. Well, how could Jesus then be the one who is a substitute for us, the righteous one to substitute for us, the unrighteous? Well, Jesus, we know, is, is both fully God and fully man. One who could represent us and could represent the sins of, of all, all the world. And also, he is one who is without sin. Jesus is, is without sin. He is the righteous one, as we see even in this verse. He's the one who's per- perfectly fulfilled the law of God, perfectly followed his word, obeyed his words. And one that could be the perfect sacrifice to die in our place for our sins. And in the Old Testament, as we see in the Old Testament, that during that time, they were able to bring sacrifices for their sin, but their sacrifices that had to happen day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. But here in this passage, we see that Christ suffered how many times? He suffered once, once for sins. The book of Hebrews, the author there speaks of it too in chapter two, 10, 11 through 14, that says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being Sanctified. So he is the righteous one who died for sins. Romans 5.8 speaks about that. For God showed his love toward us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Or 1 Corinthians 15.3-4 where Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. So our sins were laid upon Christ. 
And his righteousness was then placed upon us when we turn from our sins and trust in him. And we're made right. We're reconciled with a holy God. We're made right before him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, another one that I, I think I always, often refer to when I think of this passage, 1 Peter 3.18. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that he might become the righteous, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And then two, we see that the story doesn't end, even in this first with the crucifixion of Christ, the story continues when we were in Asia, we would share the gospel. And when you're sharing with someone who doesn't have a, any context to the God of the Bible, you have to begin from the very beginning. And you begin with creation. And we're kind of in a, a day and a time where it's even good now to begin beginning with creation and build that worldview that God has a purpose for us. But we would get to the end of that story. And as I've said before, you get to the end and you speak about the crucifixion of Christ. But then we would say, but this story isn't over. <laughs> the story isn't over and that Christ rose again. And we see here, even in this verse, that he was made alive by the Spirit. That death didn't have the final say. That he rises again. And Jesus endured suffering. And then, then he was vindicated as well. And you think of this whole First Peter. He's speaking to those who are enduring suffering because they're following Christ. And he reminds them that there is life. And they're called to endure. And that they will... They are, they are united with Christ, and there's the eternal hope that we find in the one who is alive and not in the grave. As we sang about a lot today, and as we look to, even this time, as we look to Easter, we remember those things, that he was one who was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit still does its work today in us and through us. So it's a good thing to remember as we look even at our troubles and our trials and our difficulty that we come to Christ and we find hope, we find confidence, we find assurance, we find joy, we find forgiveness, we find rest and safety and security in him. And we're reminded that we can come before our God without fear, knowing that there in Christ there is not judgment. As Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then, now we switch to verse 19, and we get into some of the, the difficult parts of this passage. And let me just read 19 through the first part of verse 20. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So the question, I guess, as we get to this, is hey, all these things, who, is this, who are these spirits, and what's this proclaiming, what's happening? And I think however you wrestle through this, one thing we do see is that as we look to this proclamation of Jesus, we see that there's victory over uh, and judgment over all, all evil in this. So we see that in this passage. And it could be really easy to get, get kind of cut, lost in the weeds of all the different things. And I could list out all of the different possibilities of things through the people through the ages have thought maybe this means. But we will just look to a couple of them. Um, two of the kind of main ones that you'll see at understandings of this that you'll see today and, and in the past. But be reminded that in this that However, as we wrestle through it, we see this overarching theme that Jesus is victorious over sin and evil and we can trust him. And we can know, even when it seems that injustice is winning, that that is not the case. 
that Christ is risen. So these two couple things. The first is, is that what this is speaking of is possibly that Christ is ministering, he's preaching through Noah. He's speaking of how at the time of Noah that the Spirit of Christ preached through Noah to those who were rebelling against God during the time as he prepared for the flood and all the years where Noah is constructing this ark. He was able to give witness day in and day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out as he built this ark and to speak about the judgment of God that was to come and that through Noah, there was a preaching of the gospel, the truth, the, resur- the, the, the rescue that they could have if they were to, to trust Yahweh God. And we see some of that pointed to in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He speaks about Noah as one who is a preacher of righteousness. Let me read that. 2 Peter 2, verse 5. It says, If he did not spare an ancient world, but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness or a preacher of righteousness with seven others then he brought a flood when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly so just speaking of that he was one who preached righteousness and others that that look to this as this is what this maybe means here they also look to 1 Peter 1 verses 10 through 12 where in that passage if you remember it speaks about how the prophets how by the Spirit of Christ that, that they prophesied about the coming of Christ and his death and his resurrection. Let me just read those verses to remind us. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 through 11 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glory. So, so this is looking at this and understanding that in the same sense, the Spirit of Christ preached through Noah to these who were rebelling against God in those times past. And if that is the meaning, then Paul, Peter, through this, he's encouraging. The encouragement would be for the believers that, that they were suffering, even though that they were suffering for following Christ, that we see that there was another time during the time of Noah where there were few, only eight that were saved, only eight that believed, but yet they were still rescued and that they were delivered. And then there was also judgment on those who rejected God. And that God, though, he, at the same time, he was patient, waiting during this time of the building of the ark to allow for the gospel to go forth. And in Peter's day, those who followed Christ were few, and yet they would still be saved there's to be rescued. Their rescue was sure in Christ. And God rescued, um, as God rescues the righteous, he would still also judge justly evil and sinners, those who reject him. So Peter wrote to ultimately, ultimately that they would be saved and that the unjust would be judged. Another understanding, though, of this passage is that of this proclamation is Jesus proclaiming victory and judgment over fallen angels, over demonic powers, over fallen angels after his resurrection. And this looks to a passage in the Old Testament, in Genesis, uh, which Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, it's the story right before the account of Noah and the flood. 
And this, again, this is another difficult passage, though, that is kind of an obscure passage that's wrestled with, too. So it's kind of, you have to be careful to use an obscure passage to help you understand another obscure passage. But, um, again, this is a difficult passage that, that is out there. But this passage, if you remember, or if you studied that in Genesis 6, I encourage you to go back and look through that. We don't have time to walk through all of it today. But it speaks about a time when it seems that it's speaking of of some wicked angels that are called the sons of God who depart from the heavenly realms and have sexual relations with women, with the daughters of man, it says. And through them, there's an increasing of, of sin and wickedness upon the earth to the point that there has to be judgment and that they're imprisoned as in for their wickedness and we see that imprisonment in another again difficult passage in jude Um, and let me read that it seems this this passage in jude seems to be pointing again to this genesis story let me read jude verses five through six or actually five through seven now i want to remind you although you once fully knew it that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angel who did not stay within, and the angels that did not stay within their own position of authority, speaking of the angels, probably pointing to Genesis 6, but left their proper dwelling, he had kept in, in, in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal life, of eternal fire. I'm sorry. But then also, also in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, it seems again to point to the same, pointing to Jude and Jude pointing to, to Genesis. Let me read that passage. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, we read that verse a little bit, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of of the ungodly. So again, a, a difficult passage, something I encourage you to wrestle through and see if you can come to a conclusion on it. So every time, or every so often, I'll see on, on Facebook um, or on social media somewhere where um, some young guy, or well, mostly young guys, who come to conclusions with things they've been debated about through, for years and years, and they say, this is the answer. And if you ever see that, just keep scrolling. Just don't even read it. You know? um, but we wrestle through that. But Nonetheless, it would see that these verses are describing Christ. It could be that Christ is just is declaring victory over these spirits that have been been instrumental in leading the world astray into greater sin in the days of Noah that were kept in prison, and he declares judgment and victory over them, and that he is victorious. And that would pair well with verse 22 that we'll look at as we see that Jesus is one who has ascended into heaven and, and one who is has authority and dominion over all powers and authorities. So if this is what Peter is pointing to, there would be great encouragement found for those believers who are suffering because they follow after Christ and reminded that there is victory and that Jesus is one who has declared victory even over these evil powers, spiritual powers, and that there's ultimate victory found in Christ and that Jesus proclaimed his victory even to those who had caused destruction during the days of Noah. 
there's an encouragement here not to be afraid. That God knows how to rescue. He knows how to save. And he is victorious. And I think those things are definitely true that we can see here. And even though we suffer, we know um, that, that there's victory to be won in Christ. In either case, again, we see Jesus' victory over sin and, and evil. And we see, too, his patience and willingness to rescue those who do turn from sin and do trust in him. There's rescue. Our God does ultimately deal with evil, too, and rescues those who humble themselves and come to him in faith. So we see these things in this picture also we'll see in this next passage as we get to this physical rescue of Noah is a picture of this rescue that we find in Christ that's pictured in baptism. So that kind of leads us to to this other passage that also is one that we have to wrestle through and try to understand what Peter is into. So let's look at verse that last part of verse 20 into 21 and as we look at this we look to the resurrection of Jesus here and we know the rescue the eternal salvation and life that we have in him so the second part of of verse 20 look with me in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through water baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, a lot of things to wrestle through here as we kind of work through this. And we've touched a little bit that we continue to see that God rescues and he rescued Noah and his family. And here then Peter connects this rescue of Noah and his family through the floodwaters with that of baptism, which also we see a, a rescue in. So he says baptism. Let's look at that. Baptism, verse 21, which corresponds to this. So what does it correspond? What is the this that it corresponds to? Well, he's saying it corresponds to the rescue of Noah and his family through the flood waters by God's provision of the ark. And we see Peter, Peter is saying here that it, it's a type, it's a picture that points us to the baptism that we have in Jesus. So Noah and his family, his, his wife, His three sons and three daughter-in-laws, so the eight of them, were brought safely through the judgment waters of the flood. And first we see that they pass through the waters safely. So it isn't the waters that are bringing safety, but it's that they are brought through the water. They're brought through safely through the judgment waters. They're saved from those waters. God saves them from judgment. It's not a safety brought by the water itself, but they're saved from the water and you see in the Old Testament, there are several places where we see water as judgment. You think of the story of when God delivered his people out of Egypt. And he had them cross through the Red Sea. And you, I'm sure you, you've seen that picture and know that picture in your mind. And read that story as the Israelites there. There's Moa. Moa. I don't know who Moa is. <laughs> Noah. Um, Noah and Moa and Moses. I'm combining them. So it was, it was really Moses. I know this, I know this story. So Moses, um, he uh, parts the Red Sea, and they go across on dry land, the Israelites, and they are saved through the water, and then judgment comes upon the Egyptians by the water. 
in that time, but they are brought safely through. And ultimately, if you remember, we just read in, in Jude, there was an account where it spoke about that a little bit. I'll read it again, but we see that who's the one that's ultimately even there saving? It's Jesus. Jude says, again, um, referring back to what we've read already, Now I want you to remember, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. So ultimately, even the hand of Christ was there in their midst as he, he rescued his people. So we were reminded that Jesus saves. And then we must ask, well, what's the relationship then between these floodwaters and baptism? When baptism, there is a sub- submersion underwater. We're submerged underwater, and it represents death and judgment. And if we're submerged under the water for too long, what happens? We, we die, right? <laughs> um, we die. And there is a picture of death uh, and judgment for sin that we see in, pictured in baptism. Let me read from Romans 6, 3 through 5, where Paul talks about that. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? says we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in newness of life for if we have been united with him in death like his we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his so baptism represents that union with christ by faith not just in his death because when we're baptized, we don't hold someone under the water and don't let them up. So it's not a time for payback for mean comments about my sermon or something. But we, it represents our union with Christ and his, then his resurrection. That we are delivered safely through the waters. That we, our sins are paid for. And it represents the, the risen Christ. That we've been risen from the dead. That as Christ conquered death and sin. That we're, we're, we're united with him. We come safely through the waters. representing rep, Again, representing the judgment of sin and death. So we're rescued. We're rescued. And we saw that in verse 18 already. That the, the one who is righteous died for the unrighteous. For our sins. But then came alive and rose again. And then, though, Peter says, he wants to make it sure it's really difficult for us this morning and throughout the ages, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So what is he saying? Is he saying that the outward physical act of baptism plus our faith in Christ saves us? Is that what's going on? Is it the act of baptism that will save you? Um, what, what's going on? On in this, and I think Peter knew that there would be confusion here, and he wants to, to make it clear though, and to understand a little bit more. And he says that baptism saves us not as a removal, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it isn't the going down into the water and then coming out that brings about salvation and rescues us. It's not as if we are a little bit dirty and we need a bath to remove that dirt from our body. And it isn't the water. Again, remember, it's not the water that does the saving. Remember, it's the water represents actually judgment and death. Again, 
is we're lifted, if we're left under the water too long, we'll die. And there's a representation of that. Instead, baptism is an act of faith, a true spiritual, representing this true spiritual reality of death and resurrection. Again, he says that we are appealing through the baptism, we're appealing to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This appeal to God, it's an act of faith as we become aware of our sin and our need for salvation. We become aware that we need Christ and we become aware of the precious blood of Jesus Christ spilt for us. And we respond by turning from our sin and trusting in him and his perfect life and his righteousness and his death and his resurrection. And it's not not about the water doing a work, but represents that act of faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's that perfect symbol of the true spiritual reality of the changed life that we have in Christ. One of our professors at seminary, Dr. Um, Tom Schreiner, he said it this way. Believers at baptism ask God on the basis of the death and the resurrection of Jesus to cleanse their conscience and forgive their sins. So it's an act of faith, even in that baptism, responding by faith and repentance. So we need forgiveness. We need our conscience cleared. We are people, if we're honest, that we do as we think about our life and our actions and our words. If we're still long enough, we do recognize that we need forgiveness. We need Jesus. And sometimes we we live in a world, especially now, where it's just so busy and so hurried and so noisy that we can live through life and numb that call in our heart that we need forgiveness and that we need Jesus. And we can go to all sorts of things. Sometimes we talk about them as candy-coated poisons that for a little bit they help or chocolate-covered death and different things, but they just numb us for the moment. Sometimes we need to be still before God and recognize and know that we indeed need Jesus. We need his forgiveness. And so we're so thankful that the righteous one died for us, the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God and that we can turn to him by faith and repentance and then also respond by baptism, recognizing that we need need that forgiveness. I think Peter also points one other place in this letter that helps us understand this purification of our heart and our soul. If you remember back in 1 Peter chapter 1, you can even look back to that, verse 22. He says this, Having purified, purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So again, he says in this, he's saying, you purify your soul by the obedience to the truth. And then out of that's going to flow out a response of love. He says, we are purified through the obedience of truth. And if, if you remember, we walked through that passage and truth corresponded with God's word, but then a little bit later corresponded with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So there's a response and obedience to the gospel. And what's that obedience to the gospel? Well, Jesus said we needed to repent and believe. We need to turn from our sins and trust in him. And that's our obedience to the truth. And through our obedience, our act of faith and repentance uh, through the gospel, the truth of Jesus, we are forgiven. Um, And there's new life that we find in Jesus. And then finally, verse 22. 
a little bit easier kind of getting to the other side of it here. He says about Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So we see in this, we look to the triumphal, triumphant ascension of Jesus and find a settled, a sure rest in him because he is the one who reigns. Jesus sits victorious over all authority and all powers. He rules, and, and as we come to him, we are his. He's in control. When, we suff- when suffering comes, we're reminded that we look to the one who suffered great injustice and yet arose victorious, and we have great hope in him, and we can suffer well in him. And even as we suffer, as we look to the cross, I think we can suffer with... Um, a. Our suffering can be seasoned with thankfulness as we look to Jesus. And we're reminded that there's hope as we look to eternity into Christ. Jesus was one who emerged victorious, conquering death and sin and evil. And we know that we too, in him, have victory and we can rest in him. So as you wrestle through some of this this week, some of the things that you might ask yourself is maybe you know that you've trusted Christ and, and you've yet to be baptized and you'd like to, to make, take that step and to recognize that death and that resurrection that has happened in your life and that you're reunited with Christ and that you'd like to, to do that. And if, that, if that's something you haven't done and you'd like to do, please let me know. Um, Easter's coming. That'd be a great time to, to have a baptism or two and represent that. Or maybe you walk through just some difficulties that have come upon you as you followed after Christ are just in this world that is broken by sin and you need to be reminded that we serve a risen Savior who's in control and has conquered death and sin and he's declared victory over all powers that, that ultimately will be defeated and we can find hope. And maybe, Or maybe this morning you recognize that you have yet to make that first step of trusting Christ, that you sit in a, a state re- recognizing that you need the forgiveness of Jesus. Well, this morning might be a morning to come and and turn from your sins and trust in him. And I encourage you to wrestle through those things. Ask one of us what it means to follow Christ or take one of those cards that you got coming in and just mark you'd like to know how to follow Christ. Well, let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for these passages, even difficult ones that cause us to, to spend a lot of time thinking and praying and reading and, and discerning what you'd have for us to learn. And I pray that is even as we hit this difficult passage that we can see the big truths and big main themes that we can find about you and find great hope in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us to rest in his death and resurrection and that he is one who has ascended and is victorious and find hope. And I pray this morning, even if there are any who have yet to rest, in Christ, that you would use your word through your Holy Spirit to awaken hearts this morning to the goodness of the gospel. Be reminded of these good, good things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we we respond um, as we do to these truths by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one of the beautiful things about the taking of the communion is that we we declare